Good morning. You are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX, Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. And that was the funky song by the Science Class Heroes. Might give you a clue to what we're talking about today. So, um, partnering with Science Week, we're going to be talking all about fungi. Uh, So from the woodlands to the catwalk and beyond, uh, we're going to talk about multifunctional fungi and we're going to be chatting with my colleague nature historian and photographer Alison Pullio, Guy Webb who's an agronomist and the co-founder and managing director of Soil Sequest and Peter Wenzel from Fungi Co which is a local uh, Canberra based fungi business and we're going to discuss all things fungi and revolutionary new uses uh, such as things like mushroom leather for the fashion industry as a viable meat and protein substitute in our diets and the essential role fungi plays in maintaining our earth's soil carbon sponge. So welcome to the show everyone Everyone, Alison, Guy, and Peter. Good morning. Yeah, lovely to join you. Thanks. Good morning. Wonderful. So um, perhaps we could start with a little bit about um, who you are and the work that you do, and give the listeners a little bit of an intro so we can set the stage here. Uh, who would like to go first? How about uh, Alison? Ladies first. Yes. Good morning. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Look, I, I'm an ecologist, and I've always had a particular interest in fungi and Probably less so like Peter, who works with the mushrooms and all the amazing things that that they do and what he can do with them. I guess I work more with the fungi themselves, not just the fruiting structures, but the actual mycelium and trying to understand how they hold ecosystems together. So, sorry, sorry, was that? No, go on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to know what fungi do in ecosystems, how they help them function, the connectivities, how they hold soils together, how they filter water and how they support other organisms. So I come much more so from that, that ecological side of things. And you're also a, a photographer, I believe. You've taken some really beautiful pictures of oh, all sorts you. of fungi. Yes, look, I have been working, yeah, for many years trying to, I guess that's the way we put them into people's consciousness because they are such extraordinarily aesthetic organisms and, and bizarre and beautiful but so peculiar. So I think, yeah, try, trying to capture that the essence of fungi and how diverse they are has also been part of my mission, I guess. Mm, they're also a universe unto themselves, I think, fungi. Indeed, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Guy, um, perhaps we'll go to you next. You were um, doing some amazing work with soils. Yeah, Zena, we're uh, up to our necks in research at the moment, looking at the role of fungi to pull down carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in the soil, is the name of the game for our group. And that's absolutely, I was actually watching some documentary on that, and it's absolutely fascinating. Hopefully we can get into that a bit more and you can explain how that works, because that probably sounds quite bizarre to a lot of our listeners right now. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It's a bit of an unusual angle uh, to take on the fungal world, mm. but uh, it came out of some research uh, out of Sydney Uni a few years ago where um, a retiring professor and his PhD student looked at uh, particular types of fungi that uh, live in harmony with the plant, actually live inside the plant, what they call endophytes, and they were able to facilitate the, the flow of the the sugars through the plant from photosynthesis and can convert that into a really stable form of carbon in the soil and do that at an elevated rate. Right. So, so <clears throat> yeah, sorry, that was, I'd love to get into that a little bit more and a bit more detail as we go through. And your um, company, Soil Sequest, you're based in Forbes, New South Wales, is that right? Yeah, so I'm based in Forbes. The, uh, the nerve centre's in Orange at the Charles Sturt Uni. 
Uh, we've got a, a, a base set up there with labs and offices and, and greenhouses. So that's where a lot of the action is going on at the moment. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's yeah. going to be really fascinating to get into. And uh, Peter, you're more on the um, the mushroom side of things, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and just want to say hi, Alison. Lovely to meet you across the airwaves. Uh, <laughs> you too, Peter. And uh, Guy, we haven't met, but I've been watching your uh, your really interesting work. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, yeah, we're, we're a Canberra-based small company that... Uh, we've done a bit of mushroom growing and do-it-yourself mushroom kits for people to grow at home. And I guess we've moved into mushroom innovation, mushroom science education, a lot of school outreach stuff uh, with land care groups as well. And basically up for collaborations and doing interesting things with fungi. Uh, it's really the, this is the era of fungi now. People are really uh, getting interested in it and there's so much, you know, we only just scratched the surface so far. Yeah, I think fungi just might save us environmentally. I've got a hunch that, mm-hmm. that might be a big part of coming back from some of our environmental uh, cliff edge here. Um, so I know Scotty had some really great questions to get us started today. We're going to sort of get in a little bit into the science of fungi versus mushrooms and are they the same thing? Are they different things? Well, yeah, I mean, who, who wants to give us a crack at what is fungi? <laughs> um, I think I'm that's Alice's job, isn't it? Yeah. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, get the scientist here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what are fungi? I guess what fungus is the singular. Fungi are plural. And the, a fungus refers to the entire organism. So that includes the reproductive bit, what we often recognise as the mushroom or some other form like a puffball or a coral. But the whole organism includes both that reproductive part and this amazing matrix or network of these long white cells called hyphae that collectively form the fungus mycelium. And this is the living, feeding, growing part of the organism. So it's a bit like if you think of, a, say, a plant, we've got the entire plant and the reproductive bit, we see the flowers. Or with an animal, you have the whole organism, but the reproductive part is the genitalia. So when you see the mushroom, that's just the container that holds the spores. The whole organism is, that includes actually the mycelium, the underground part as well, or the part that's existing in another substrate, like a a scat or some wood or some other organic matter. So a lot of, most of the organism, most of the fungus is actually usually invisible to us because it's underground or it's invisible within wood or something. So I guess fungi, that they're not plants, they're not animals, although they do share characteristics with both, but they occupy their whole a whole separate kingdom so but being just out of our consciousness in australia we tend to think of biodiversity or nature as plants and animals flora and fauna but the fungi have very much slipped through our notion of what nature is or what biodiversity is so i won't go into the whole details of 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 their cellular structure and how they reproduce but, but but basically they're not plants they're not animals they're i guess if you want a technical term we call them eukaryotic heterotrophs, which means they get their nutrition in a very similar way to how we do. They don't photosynthesize like plants. They actually digest their food from the surrounding environment externally. So that's a very brief description in a, in a nutshell. So, so fungi eat the way... They eat, Yeah, exactly. they eat. That's a, we've got a lot of kids listening today. There's a lot of kids who've tuned in for Science Week, so I think I'm just going to give them that visual that their fungi Absolutely. eats. Yeah. I mean, they, they eat, they get their nutrition just like we do. We put a piece of food into our mouth, it goes into our digestive tract, we secrete enzymes and extract what we need. Fungi do exactly the same thing, but they do it externally. So they basically sit directly 
in their food source and they slobber. <laughs> they slobber out their <laughs> enzymes and they absorb it directly from the environment. So we have internal digestion and fungi have external digestion. So they just basically sit in their food. Their stomach on the outside, eh? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit like your Labrador, Scotty. <laughs> No, things just get hoovered into that dog. Yeah. Um, so where can you find fungi? I mean, you, you only see mushrooms every now and then, but it's it's deceptive, isn't it? Maybe the question is where can't you find fungi? <laughs> <laughs> so fungi pretty much have colonised every terrestrial ecosystem, pretty much every terrestrial ecosystem. There'd be one or two, some really saline environments where you might not find them. But they also exist in aquatic environments, both freshwater and marine. If you're really unlucky, you might find some in your armpits or in your toenails. But there's few environments that actually haven't managed to colonise. Mm, so they're, they're, anyone feel free to chip in on this? I, I guess, yes, Guy, uh, do you find any fungus in the soil? Yeah, Scotty, um, I've known you for quite a while. and I, I know you're not uh, highly technical sometimes with electronics. <laughs> I can't hear anything Alison is saying, unfortunately. Ah, OK, no worries. Not, we'll not fix part of the that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Alison's just described that uh, the question is more where can't you find fungus rather than where can you find fungus. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, can you where, find, where do we find fungi? Yeah, where do you uh, deal with it? It's in the soil, yeah? Yeah, we, we're really focusing on the soil, obviously trying to find the ones that are most productive for the jobs that we're, we're, we're looking to do for agriculture. Um, we've actually had a really good look around for fungi uh, this year. We, um, we had a, a project where we went far and wide right throughout Australia looking for some dry climates. Um, so people go out to the desert, for example, and you you um, in the outback and you you're in dry, sandy soils. You think there wouldn't be much life uh, going on there, um, but the soils are actually full of fungi, and fungi were there long before the plants um, and animals arrived uh, uh, in those really extreme environments. And the whole ecosystem is is um, founded on the ability of the fungi to help plants survive in those extreme conditions and that's sort of been the focus of our work. What what are some of these uh, ecosystem services that fungi can provide um, that, that do currently provide to nature that they may be able to provide to agriculture um, is where we find it interesting. But you, you can't escape fungi, they're in every, every you know, gram of soil mm. Uh, that you put under the microscope, you'll always find fungi. It just depends on what sort they are. And there's a lot of it, right? It's not just one particular type. There's probably many, many varieties that are in the soil. Huge diversity, yeah, that's right. And particularly as you get out into more natural ecosystems, the diversity uh, goes up, as you'd expect, um, and it goes down as you get into more intensive uh, agricultural systems. Um, but there's still a great diversity of, of, of fungi and they they interact very intimately um, with the plants and with the other microbes in the soil, your bacteria and and uh, all the other um, you know, microscopic creatures that, that roam around in the soil. And it's interesting to me the way that life communicates uh, to each other. So, you know, we're all talking uh, via the English language at the moment, communicating by vibrations that hit our ears and we uh, interpret that vibration and make sense of that uh, that word and 
in our brains. And it's, it's exactly the same with fungi. They, uh, and indeed, you know, soil microbes, how they talk to each other and talk to the plants. It's, um, but it's just a different method that they use. They use chemical signatures, uh, signal compounds to, to actually communicate. But it's every bit as elaborate as the English language, um, how uh, these organisms talk to each other and, and indeed talk to plants. Mm, that's amazing. So they just um, almost like that stand of aspen trees. That's like one organism. They're just all communicating on subsurface levels. Yeah, definitely. It's like I guess the, the closest analogy is the the microbiome in our in our stomachs. That we you know we know there's a you know lots of diversity in our stomachs and they take care of the food that we eat. And you know humans are ninety five percent genetically uh, you know, microbes in our in our stomach, and it's no different to uh, the soil. You know, the soil is the stomach of the plant, mm-hmm. and um, you've got that uh, that level of diversity happening. And without without all that diversity of microbes, the plants you know, can't function. So it really is like one organism, really mm-hmm. just uh, integrated into a, a variety of different organisms. So they refer to the, the human digestive system sometimes as the gut brain. Is that the same sort of intelligence we're talking about that the fungi have within the soil? Yeah, definitely. There's a it's a communication highway. The the hyphal network of, of fungi, of course, they they have these root-like structures called hyphae, which Alison's probably already alluded to, um, that grow out through the soil like a big net, um, and it is an information network. So when you hear someone say, "Oh, something went viral on the internet," they really should be saying something went hyphal on the internet. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a closer analogy. Oh, we'll see if we can get that changed for you, mate. Um, may I yeah, just, so I just want to interject. Um, Alison, are you able to hear Guy well? Yes, I can. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Guy, were you able to hear Alison's response just there? No, I can't hear Alison, okay. unfortunately. Love we're going to have a fi- Sorry, listeners, we're going to have a try and fix that uh, for Guy. Yeah, we'll just keep but, tinkering uh, a bit, yeah, mate. But perhaps. So thank you. So perhaps we can go <laughs> to Peter. While, while you tinker, I might sort of <laughs> throw in a couple of ideas about where you, where you find fungi. Because I guess a lot of people, well, don't pay attention to fungi, but we find with the outreach that we do to schools, once you teach kids or anyone about fungi and you take them for a bit of a, a walk onto an oval or into the forest or even just in the garden, you begin to get your eye tuned in for fungi and you see them popping up everywhere. And I'm really pleased a lot of my friends these days, they can't help but spot fungi now and they always send me pictures and ask me what they are. Sometimes I know what they are, sometimes I don't, but... I guess getting people to look down at the ground and observe nature, I think that's that's what it's all about. And there are really, as as the others have said, there, there are fungi, um, you know, in, in wet forests, as you might expect during the autumn, but any time of year and almost anywhere on earth, you can probably find some sort of fungus. Uh, yeah, as Alison said, if you're unlucky, you might find it on yourself or growing in your bathroom or something like that. Um, it's and And we find that the kids are... Kids are really into it, you know. That, that, that it's a, it's a, we found that it's a, it's a great tool for teaching kids about science and nature and and getting their heads around the whole ecosystem, how everything is connected. Mm, that's yeah, brilliant stuff. Yeah, it is. It's a great point that the um and the, the fruiting bodies that people see as you wander through a forest and you see all the, the fungi, the the, the actual mushroom part. Uh, pop up above the soil, and Alison's probably covered this. I might not have heard, but yeah, that that is just the fruiting body of the organism. It's only a small part of the organism that uh, that's going to reproduction. Uh, but under the every footstep that you're taking, there's this whole universe of life of fungal hyphae going on 
under the soil and the only time you really see it is if you, you dig into it and have a look under the microscope obviously but um, more demonstratively is the you know the fruiting bodies that we see scattered through forests but when you see that it's only a tip of the iceberg of what's happening underneath and the massive life that's uh, going on that's sustaining the, the life in the soil. Yeah, if you're gardening as well, if you sort of weeding or brush away a bit of soil, sometimes you'll see these white cottony threads growing through the soil and they're, they're, they're some sort of species of fungi. Yeah, that's right. All wrapped around um, organic matter, dissolving the organic matter, yeah. um, putting out enzymes and dissolving cellulose and so on. You can see those big fat white hyphae uh, quite often in coarse materials and straw and, and that sort of highly cellulose material that's when the fungi come out to play because they're just the masters at, at breaking down highly lignous material. Mm. Yeah. So this is the eating so we talked heaps about. is another one, obviously. Yeah, 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 we'll get into that in a while. Um, so wh- where else can you find them? I've heard of an experiment where there was a, a I'm school... I'm not sure if you can still hear me, Scotty. Yes, yep. yes, we've got you, mate. I might be switched off. Oh, now, now can you hear us? Uh, yep, got uh, you now. Okay, we're just doing a little yep. bit of tinkering here. <laughs> um, That's all right. Yeah, we might have to use some chemical communication. Yes, <laughs> give it a shot. <laughs> I don't know how it'll work for the listeners. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, do you find fungus floating around in the air? Well, there are lots of spores, I guess, in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, the mushrooms are the fruiting bodies that we've mentioned before. They produce their, their, their once they mature, they, the, the normal mushroom that you think of with a cap that expands and the gills underneath. That's the sort of fertile surface that produces these little spores that are like a, a dust, I guess. And they produce millions or billions of them and release them into the air. And then the, that's that's their, their babies being carried away and they'll land somewhere and sometimes they'll land on a dry spot and sometimes they'll land somewhere that's moist enough for them to start growing and that's the next generation of fungi so these spores can be found all around us in the air and uh, up high into the the stratosphere and there's some interesting uh, research or discussions on uh, fungal spores being the uh, catalyst for precipitating water so that's it's that's some interesting sort of area of research or an interesting com- concept that these spores potentially can contribute to the formation of uh, rain. Mm. Yeah, right. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So fungi are mostly water, aren't they? <laughs> the most, the, the bodies of fungi are mostly water? The, the fruiting water? body, yeah. yeah. I mean, like a lot of organisms, I mean, we're, we're largely water as well. But yes, and that's, that you see that when mushrooms sort of pop up overnight sometimes, which is part of their mystique, they sort of they come and go. Um, and when they're, when they're tiny little button or primordia, when they're just forming under the ground, then within a, a day or a couple of days, they can suddenly become this big mushroom. So there's sort of this element of as organisms grow, cell division but with mushrooms they're able to really suck up water and expand their cells massively and that's that's part of the reason why they can grow i think allison was going to say something yeah, as well yeah, yeah well, just to further what you were saying peter about spores being so ubiquitous or widespread within the air also keep in mind that that most fungi are actually microscopic we call them microfungi, which means we can't see them with the naked eye and we tend to notice the macro fungi the ones that produce these conspicuous Fruiting structures or sporocarp is the, is the scientific term, the mushrooms and, and toadstools or puffballs or whatever, but most fungi are actually microscopic. So think of all those things like moulds and yeasts and all those types of fungi and, you know, the famous ones like penicillium. 
from which we get penicillin from. So I think fungi are probably much more widespread than we actually realise because we're not seeing them most of the time. Do, are they asexual? Do they need other fungi to reproduce or can they do it all on their own? Because they, they are, like I said, part of a collective underneath the surface. That's You're not going to take us down the sort of depths of fungal sex, are you? Ah, well, <laughs> great, great four to six level. Uh, only a little ways, yeah. <laughs> fungi sort of challenge our whole notions of how we think about other organisms and how we think about these binaries of things like male and female and fungi are sexual and asexual. They don't just have two sexes in the way animals and plants do. That some fungi, we actually don't call them sexes, we call them mating types, but we know some fungi have thousands of different mating types. So all these ways we think about nature and how we categorise them and how we describe them, fungi challenge all of those because they're not like plants and animals in the same way. It makes it a bit complex for dating if you're a fungus, if there's thousands of mating types, doesn't it? Well, it opens all kinds of opportunities. Yeah. I mean, forget LGBTI, fungi yeah. can take this to a whole other extreme. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what's the life cycle of uh, fungi? Like, I know some have very short cycles and some have quite long cycles. Peter, you, 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 you grow fungi, so I'll yeah, your look, the, the, I guess, again, as Alison alluded to, um, there's, there's not just one size fits all for these answers for fungi. There are a huge range of diverse organisms, but I guess the ones that we're familiar with at FungiCo, which is, you know, the, the edible sort of medicinal mushrooms, the, the Southeast Asian oyster mushroom, shiitake, all those sort of things, they, um, they, they grow from a spore and you might have, um, you know, two spores growing, they come together, the mating types, and then they, then they form a mycelium and they might grow for, uh, you know, a month or so or, or several months inside um, their substrate, their food that they're growing into. So they grow in the leaf litter or in a, a fallen branch in the forest and yeah, they might grow for some months and then uh, periodically, you know, every autumn or when they run out of nutrients or get some sort of stress like other organisms, then it will be time to produce babies. And then with the right conditions, so often it's the, the cold snaps or they grow in the, in the summertime, they grow sort of through the forest's uh, debris and wood. And then when autumn comes, they've got the drop in temperature, the rain, and these are the right sort of genetic triggers mm -hmm. to then produce mushrooms. And so the mushrooms start growing out of the, say, surface of the wood, the bark or whatever. And that might, the, the, the mushroom might take you know, a couple of weeks to form or some of them, as I mentioned before, might grow overnight almost. And uh, and then the, the mushrooms come and go, they release their spores, the spores go off into the wind and start another colony somewhere, another organism somewhere. And then the 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 log, a piece of wood for, for this example, might then no longer have any mushrooms on it and you can't see anything. If you broke it open, you might see some of these white fungi, uh, the hyphae. But then it remains sort of not dormant, but it's no longer producing these these fruiting bodies. And then next autumn or the next spring, when the rain and the right conditions come along, then they'll produce mushrooms again. Uh, we do woodlog cultivation, so um, we, we mimic what happens in nature. And if you have a, a piece of wood, then it, it might um, produce mushrooms every autumn for you know five years ten years depending how big the log is and it's a kind of fun and interesting thing to do in your garden yeah. would you consider that the same organism or is that a death death and life cycle well in this example the, the mushroom the fungus that's growing through the wood would be the same organism um and uh, you know, as Alison mentioned before you know you can have an analogy with a 
with, say, an apple tree, for example. So, you know, you have the apple tree growing and every year it produces the apples. So you have the, the log in the forest and every year it produces the mushrooms. Um, so it's the, the apples are kind of a bit analogous to the fungi, the apple seeds are a bit analogous to the spores, and then the whole apple tree, the leaves, the stems, the, the, the trunk, the roots, that's kind of what the white mycelium that's inside the log. So that's a sort yeah, of analogy. That's a great way to look at it. So I've always, um, always been amazed that uh, things like bacteria and viruses, well, bacteria we'll stay with, um, they just divide. And you don't really get bacteria dying of old age. They just keep on dividing and dividing. So, I mean, death for a bacteria is more about getting eaten or diseased or something than, than dying. Where do fungus fit on that, you know? Because most of your sort of more complex life forms sort of have death built in so that they don't get too big or for some, I don't know, I'm just speculating here. They become world dictators. Just because we're fungi, I think... It's kind of like a life-death continuum, isn't it? Yeah. It's uh, the life and death cycle, and I guess fungi are no different. They, uh, it's all just different versions of that same same cycle, as you say, Scotty, with um, with bacteria. They'll, they'll split in two, but that's kind of the end of that one organism that might live for half an hour, and then all of a sudden the, the next generation is triggered and he, you know, he or she... <laughs> well, I don't suppose there is a he and a she with a bacteria... <laughs> Uh, but they they split in two, and that's the end of that uh, single-celled organism's life on the planet. It becomes something different then, and uh, the next generation. And as with uh, fungi, the, if you imagine the fruiting body, um, and then you know into the sporulation when that fruiting body dies, that's you could sort of say that's the end of that organism's uh, time on the planet, and that's uh, leaving way for the for the spores to to germinate and do their thing. Um, so it's sort of like a a continuum, and I think it's just a a human construct that we put on it, but it's, there's a point where one, one's called life, one's called death, but uh, it really is just one long continuum, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, funny stuff, eh? Yeah. Where fungi are interesting, you might be able to stay. Well, yeah, oh, there's still... They, with a, we got your hip. <laughs> with a, um, you know, with a, an animal, say a chook or a dog or something, we know they have a particular lifespan of 15 years or 20 years. But technically... If a fungus has a continual supply of food and it isn't stressed, say we don't, you know, dig it up or burn it or have some heavy machinery on the soil and crush the mycelium, it can technically live infinitely. So we found some fungi that are thousands of years old because they live in remote forests and no one's been there doing things that stress or damage those fungi. And so long as there's a food supply, they don't have a fixed... You know, we can't say, oh, this fungus lives for 10 years, this type lives for 20 years. I mean, it can technically live infinitely so long as that food source is there and it isn't hurt or damaged or stressed in some way. So that kind of also challenges our way as we think about, as Guy was saying, you know, we have these human constructs we put around how we understand life and different organisms, but same thing to do with its size. A fungus can actually grow to an infinite size. I mean, we know there are some fungi, for example, in Oregon and elsewhere in the world, that have achieved amazing sizes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres big. So that, so long as that food is there, they can just grow to an infinite size for an infinite period of time. So that's another really curious, fascinating thing about fungi that, that again, is different to plants and animals. Mm. Would fungi reduce its size based on environmental conditions? So, for instance, you said they're, you know, obviously undisturbed, they're growing to these enormous sizes, but, um, you know, say we've got a, a, a 
severe drought or we've got um, you know, some kind of environmental impact, a flood or a, um, a huge upheaval of some kind? Do they, do they sort of shrink back yeah. down in order to survive? Or? Certainly. And like, I mean, Australia is probably one of the most variable continents in the world in terms of the extremes of weather and the unpredictability of weather and climate. And we look at our plants and animals and how remarkably well adapted they are. I mean, look, for example, at the tree genus Eucalyptus, and they have these waxy cuticles on their leaves to stop desiccation, and they put their stomata on the underside of the habitat. They're very, very well adapted to the, to the extremes we have. And the fungi is just the same. And so we have prolonged periods of drought. There's not much moisture in the soil. There's not much food there. The fungi will basically hunker down and not put that energy into growth. So certainly the environmental conditions will determine whether they'll even produce their reproductive structures. I mean, some years, some autumns, they won't send up any mushrooms at all because they don't want to invest that energy into reproducing. So certainly they will respond to the environmental conditions accordingly. Mm. I used to live in the um, Pacific Northwest in Canada and there's a lot of mushroom foraging that goes along in the um, spruce and the cedar forest there and I'd always hear the mushroom pickers say, oh, it's really bad mushroom year this year and I couldn't tell the difference. Like To me, it was like the same sort of case, the same, same amount of rain, the um, you know temperature was similar, but some years there would be prolific uh, mushrooms and they'd have a really good season for picking and other times it'd be they'd all be competing to find you know five mushrooms. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, I was actually in the Pacific Northwest last season and I was out with several octogenarians who've been you know, foraging for 60, 70 years and they said it was actually the best season they had ever seen in terms of the abundance and also the diversity of fungi. And a lot of them explained it in terms of, you know, again, that connection and relationship with trees and the investment that the trees are making and passing out sugars. And, you know, it's very interesting that we can't actually ever look at the fungi in isolation. You have to look at how the rest of the forest is doing in terms of the climate and the biggest cycles of life and, and how the, you know, the most fungi we know, not most fungi, most plants have relationships with with fungi, we know over 300,000 types of plants interact with at least a good 50,000 types of fungi. So you've always got to look at it in association with not just the climate and the weather, but also how the rest of the forest is faring, what's happening in the soil, how are those plants and trees and other organisms faring in, you know, in terms of the climate and the seasons. Mm. Yeah, it's it's been a cracker of a season here this year as well, I reckon. And and one thing I noticed with uh, you know good seasons and bad seasons is it's not just the conditions at the time, but a couple of years we've had really hot, long, dry summers, and then you get the rains come along. And, and sometimes that seems to me, at least anecdotally, that might uh, contribute to a good fungal season. But I guess that speaks more to the point of you know we often look at a thing, an organism, a mushroom a, or a point in time, but really it's everything's on a long scale really it's sort of these long time frames that, and the interactions that Alison's talking about, It's we have to uh, sort of cast our vision a bit broader to really understand nature I think. Mm. And can you, can you sort of induce mushrooms to, to oh, can you induce a mycelial mat to send up mushrooms by yeah. sort of stressing it or breaking it or anything? absolutely that's the, that's part of our uh, uh, sort of uh, shtick is really when we grew mushrooms and the do-it-yourself kits that we we uh, have for people um we we grow uh, fungi like the oyster mushroom in bags of sawdust basically and um in in a plastic bag and uh, with a little breathing hole for them to breathe so we get a bit of the mycelium and and put it in this uh, steamed sawdust and once it's cooled down and the and the fungus will just grow through the bag of sawdust much like in the wild it will grow through the wood log on the forest floor and we grow them incubate them in the dark 
um, at 25 degrees and that's kind of their summer and then we take the bag and put it in the fridge overnight and then we open up the the lid and let oxygen get in there and then we spray it with some water and that's effectively the autumn condition so it's as though the fungus has grown through the whole log so it's run out of nutrition which can be a trigger for organisms to then say look i've run out of food i better produce babies and then you open up the cap so that's like their hyphae getting to the surface of the, the <laughs> interface between the the bark and the the air so they get the oxygen and then you spray it with water that's the rain and the cold in the fridge that's that's uh, sort of the autumn temperature so you can trick them by giving them summer conditions then autumn conditions and they'll produce mushrooms then you if you they might wait a, wait a while and then a few weeks later again you can chuck it in the fridge and do the same thing and you can switch them between summer and autumn summer and autumn and that's how commercial farmers will induce mushrooms to fruit yeah cool so no, question, question oh. for you um in response to the drought and then having rain after a long period of drought we've seen a prolific um explosion in cape weed um, and, and cape weed is something that people often don't see for several years, uh, but it apparently is very, very high in nitrogen. And I'm wondering if there's any link to like high nitrogen and, and you said a really good year for fungi. Is there anyone that knows if there's any connection to that? Well, the answer, like so many questions, is probably maybe, yes, no, <laughs> it depends. We, there's only so much that we know, and I mean, I only know a little bit, uh, but and the others might know more, but yeah, again, we're just scratching the surface of our understanding of fungi, let alone all these interactions at a micro level and across huge timescales. I think after uh, long periods of dry times, like the droughts that we've had recently, um, there's a process in the soil called uh, nitrogen mineralisation, so it's the conversion of uh, long chain amino acids and things like that and slowly converts into plant available nitrogen so it breaks down slowly and to and that builds up available nitrogen in the soil so when it rains you've got this great big supply of nitrogen sitting there in the soil and every weed under the sun every plant under the sun just goes you little beauty here's a whole heap of nutrient let's get going and that's why you often see that really monstrous explosion uh, from a dry time through to a, um, going into a wet season. Yeah. Now, I'll have to keep things moving along. We've got a lot to cover here, as I'm sure you all know. Um, but there's two more things about the actual fungus itself that I want to cover. Um, so mycelium, they're running through the soil or the water or whatever they are. We'll say soil. Um, they're, they're very, very small. Mycelium's like... I don't know, is it just sort of one cell thick or something like that? So how does, like, we've got all these layers of skin to keep all the things that want to eat us out and the water in, but there's only one little cell wall between the soil, which is this amazing mix of microbial things that are, you know, we all know mushrooms are good eating. Um, how do they defend themselves? Well, going to these... Uh, uh biological compounds that they use to communicate with um, and they've got a range of, uh, of compounds in their vocabulary if you like and some of them are swear words and uh, <laughs> they, they, can, they can swear at other creatures and frighten them off so to speak um, so there, there is this really intimate communication going on and that's how um, you know, different fungi in the soil produce um, antifungal compounds that will help uh, ward off other organisms uh, that might want to um, destroy it 
and uh, the same with plants um, when the, with their interaction with fungi as well. You mentioned that you know how many cell walls seek a plant and uh, has uh, got to defend itself, and fungi aren't all uh, beneficial. There's um, a whole range of uh, plant pathogens that are uh, diseases that are fungi because they're they're opportunists and they love to eke out an ecological niche for themselves, whatever that might be. They're not fussy whether it does uh, good for the plant or bad for the plant, but if it's in their favour to do something good for the plant, then it'll do that and the plant will facilitate the relationship. But in the case of pathogens, um, this chemical kind of fight goes on at the interface between the plant cells and the fungi cells, and the fungi will exude some... um, enzymes for example to and and some signal compounds to try to trick the plant and let it uh, penetrate its hyphae into the the goodies that are in the cell so it's after the cytoplasm um and, and all the sugars that are in the cell of the plant and uh the the plant will recognize some of those compounds and if it's got um, a good defense system it'll mount a defense that'll make another range of biological compounds that are antifungal often very high in copper and uh, various compounds that the fungi don't like. And uh, you have this kind of pistolas at dawn, if you like, uh, going on between the fungus trying to get into the plant and the, the plant trying to ward the fungus off. And um, it, it, you know, whoever has the most resources um, and, the, and the most tricks up its sleeve uh, wins the battle. And, and that's happening at, at every level in... You know, it's, you know, it's like a jungle, I guess, <laughs> in the soil system. And... Um, there's all these beneficial relationships, altruistic relationships that go on uh, right through to um, you know, pathogenic uh, relationships. Uh, it's simply because they're, they're trying to eke out an ecological niche and trying to survive and they'll use any trick that they can to do that. Some of it's beneficial to the plant and, and some of it's not. Yeah, but, um, so, so the hmm. feeding is, is sort of related to this, isn't it? The actual way that uh, mycelium eat, the, they've got the little tips of these, these hyphae that are coming out and what happens in the tip of one of these hyphae as they encounter something new? I guess uh, I might add to that there, say the fungal mycelium, the little tube, little tube growing through the soil or the wood. And as we mentioned, they grow in their food. They digest, they're just digestive enzymes are on the outside. And so they're basically a little tube growing forwards. And at the tip, they're making all these nutrients and enzymes and things that are breaking down their food. And also, as Guy said, making medicines to protect themselves against the viruses. So it's almost like they're, they're making a little soup around themselves and just you know delving forward into their food so they're always protected by this little layer of their soup i guess i think i've heard alison um talk about this quite eloquently before i don't know if you have anything to add (laughs) i I also just wanted to backtrack slightly to i like the analogy that guy made you know the vocabulary of fungi and the swear words and, (laughs) and as a photographer i've often thought it'd be so amazing if we could visualize the incredible politics that go on under the soil in terms of these, you know, chemical messaging and, and the warfare that goes on. And, and, and there's a famous mycologist who once said, if you wanted to study the fungi, then take a scat, take a wallaby scat or a cow, you know, a cow pat and just observe it and observe all these incredible 
know, the different succession of species that come and go and the, the, the fights and the cooperation and the competition that goes on between them. And I'm thinking about some of the fungi that, for example, Peter grows. I'm, I'm sure you all know oyster mushrooms. And we know that oyster mushrooms possess these incredible chemicals that can actually, things like neurotoxins, that can paralyse things such as nematodes. Nematodes are worms that some farmers don't like. Some are beneficial, some are not. And they can actually do things like inject a, a toxin, a neurotoxin, into the nematode and paralyse it. And then with the hyphae, form like a lasso or a loop and encourage that nematode to swim through it. Then by hydrostatic pressure, they actually constrict and crush the nematode, paralyse it with the toxin and absorb the nutrients. <laughs> and I just think, imagine if you could capture this visually and show people this. I think that, and this again, this whole amazing artillery or, or chemist shop full of chemicals that, that fungi have, particularly the lichens. We haven't even mentioned the lichens yet. And the number of chemicals, we know about the 200 chemicals they have, that some are to protect them from the sun, some are to communicate, all these different reasons they have these, these different chemicals for communication, for protection. So, uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating. Well, there's thousands of kids around the country who are doing uh, animation as part of their schoolwork, and maybe you'll get a call from one of them. Absolutely. That's a brilliant way to do it, I think, because it's so hard to actually film under the soil and film at this microscopic level in darkness. So I think animation would be the best way to go. There is a German research group that are doing some brilliant work with the visualisation of uh, inside of a hyphae and the interaction between root systems of plants. So, I mean, we could, we could look that up, but it's, yeah, they, they're doing some great uh, 3D animation of it. I think there's a Disney Pixar movie in all of this. <laughs> Definitely. So when when the we'll go back a second. Um, when the when the tips of the hyphae are, they're growing out, the tubes <coughs> extending, and they encounter something new, what do they do then? Anyway, I, I guess that's when their their fungi have these these amazing enzymes. So that kids out there might be familiar with enzymes. Sort of uh, they do things they help us you know digest our food and often you have an enzyme that's very specific to a certain compound so you know if we break down milk there's a certain enzyme to break that down and but uh, fungi encounter these complex molecules like lignans in wood and so they have developed this complex suite of enzymes and they're really powerful complicated and fungi tend to have this ability to not just stick to one food source but be able to adapt to something they've never encountered before and then they'll switch on potentially switch on their, their genes to make different enzymes or different mix of enzymes and in mushroom farming you can actually train your fungi to um, grow on different different substrates so we grow them on wood but then over the years we've experimented with you know coffee grounds and food waste or we have this school classroom project where it's called <coughs> fungi eat cardboard so we get the kids to grow the fungi on the cardboard um, you can add different nutrients uh, did a bit of research with adding you know copper and alcohol and different compounds and high doses of lignans to see what happens to fungal growth and fungal enzymes and you can you can really you know knock them around but they'll still grow they'll still produce the enzymes it's they're quite amazing one of the um, innovations i saw recently is fungi that eats plastic and they're talking about maybe with our enormous amount of plastic waste that we have that we're trying to figure out how to dispose of ethically, um, that there's a potential to have this fungi that eats plastic. Does anyone know much about that? Is there any um, sort of additional research or anyone's come across anything around how effective that is? And is that is that a viable 
solution to reducing our plastic waste? Well, it's the holy grail. Yeah. I think at this stage there's, there's some uh, nascent, you know, uh, initial research into this. But uh, some of some of the plastic, there's so many different types of plastics, and I think there are certain classes of plastics where people are thought to have have a fungi that shows some promise. But we're a little while away, I reckon, from commercialisation of that or application of that. But um, who knows? Who knows? There's so many species out there that we don't know about. So can mm. we train our fungi to eat mm. specific plastics? Yeah, yeah. potentially. I think. Can, can I ask yeah, Peter go a question? I just uh, to turn that on its head, Peter. Is there any fungi out there that can manufacture plastics? Well, like, it, that's biodegradable type plastic. Potentially, uh, I guess some of the work we've done with uh, what we call mycomaterials, using fungi to um, growing fungi to make a, a product. Basically, uh, we've we've developed things, everything from things that seem like cardboard to paper to neoprene to leather, um, some or not quite plasticky things, but rubbery materials as well. So who knows? This is the if people out there, kids who want to research this, you can make the future happen. I think the challenge with all this kind of biotechnology, there's a lot of fantastic ideas, but always the challenge to scale it up you know, to, into a commercial level. And there's a fantastic company running out of New York called Ecovative. And I met a great guy called Gavin McIntyre who set that up. And they're actually using mycelium to develop packaging. And, and his ambition is actually to, yeah, get rid of the production of plastic and replace it with mycelium, which I think is a... Absolutely amazing aim, ambition, but I guess there's always the challenge that you've got a lot of vested interest from plastic and packaging companies who don't really want to see us doing that. But I think it's happening. It's also happening in Scandinavia. So I think it's a very interesting transitional time where we recognise we've got to not just clean up the plastic in the environment, we've got to stop the production of it. And this is where I think fungal mycelium has enormous potential to replace a lot of these really nasty synthetics that are causing so much environmental damage. And you've got, um, you know, now they've got uh, compostable, essentially plastic bags that people were able to put into worm farms and the worms are eating these bags. Um, is there a connection with like worms that would eat mycelium or eat fungi that would, um, you know, help with that breakdown process? Like I'm not quite sure what the relationship between worms and fungi would be other than they kill nematodes. <laughs> Well, I think in reality in a worm farm there's also just all kinds of other things in there that are also breaking down the, the bag. So you're going to have an enormous amount of bacteria in there. You're going to have a, a great suite of microfungi. So we're seeing the worms because they're the visible part, but I think there's so many different organisms that are involved in that process. So if you think of a, an old log or a stick or a leaf or a plastic, maybe not a plastic bag, but think of any organic matter. You've got three groups of organisms that break, break that down. You've got bacteria... You've got invertebrates, so all those spineless little creatures like your worms and your slaters and your beetles, they break it down mechanically by biting into it. And you've got the fungi who break it down chemically. So this breakdown process, it's yet not just the worms, there's a great suite of organisms, most of the microscopic that are involved in that process. And I guess picking up on that, that's, that's how we end up with soil again. So the forests, the tree falls down. The fungi and bacteria come in and might grow for years or decades. Then the beetles come and eat the fungi and then there's more fungi and bacteria and eventually that uh, carbon, the tree, gets gets turned into soil. So, you know, you sometimes hear people talk about 
fungi as the, the, the soil makers of the forests. Mm. And, I, and I guess picking up on the, the, that sort of packaging stuff, one of, the, one of the products we made a few years ago was um, instead of having plastic planter plots for your garden plants, we grew them out of fungi because fungi, you can actually adapt them to grow in any shape. If you, so we made moulds of the right shape, grew the fungi, and uh, we got school kids to do it as well. And then you end up with something that looks like a, a plastic planter pot, but it's made out of fungi and it's dried. And then you put your soil in, put, plant your seeds. And by the time your seedlings, you know, yay big, then you put it all into the soil and the worms eat the stuff. It's all compostable. So, yeah, you can do without plastic in some instances. Oh, brilliant. Mm. Now, you, you mentioned that... Um Oh, you mentioned something in there that reminded me that um, the trees are actually made out of air, mostly. So when the, when photosynthesis happens, it takes the carbon out of the air and, and turns it into wood, essentially, as part of its thing. So uh, do, do fungus do this, have the same sort of function of, of taking carbon out of the atmosphere and, and using it to build their own structures? Yes and no would be yeah. another answer. I'm sure Guy has yeah, a, a, a guy has some uh, experience with this. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of the focus of what we're um, our research, I guess, is working out just what role fungi do play in that carbon sequestration uh, pathway. And you're right. Um, you know, that's exactly what trees and plants do. They they take carbon dioxide out of the air, and with uh, water and a bit of sunlight, the magic of photosynthesis happens. And lots of other organisms, um, it's, it's really the gateway of energy uh, into the, the life ecosystem is through photosynthesis. And fungi are no different to anything else. They've worked out that they can't get energy from the sun uh, themselves, but if they have a relationship with the plant, um, somewhere along the line they can get some energy uh, from that pathway. And that's what we're interested in, and particularly the fungi that uh, they, they form a relationship with the plant, a very intimate relationship, so they'll actually enter the, the plant itself and give the plant some benefits, so they might be able to solubilise some nutrients, uh, plant growth promoting hormones, various things to protect them from disease, various things that the fungus can help the plant with, so the plant goes, okay, I'll let you uh, stay here with me and, and help me uh, with my life. And in return, the plant gives the fungus, uh, there's, a, there's a trading system, obviously, and the, the, the fungus gets some sugars from the plant. Um, and then the plant, the fungus will uh, build their body with some of those sugars. So uh, part of that uh, body is made up of carbon, um, somewhere around 20% within the case of fungi. Um, so... But some fungi do it, uh, produce more stable forms of carbon than others, and they're the ones that we're interested in with our research. And in particular, a compound is a certain uh, group of microbes called dark septate endophytes, and those fungus produce a compound called melanin. And melanin is uh, an aromatic carbon. It's a ring carbon that um, is basically the, the coloration in your freckles and in your skin is melanin. It's that compound. And when you grow these fungi on a plate, they grow black um, because of this melanin. And that melanin uh, is quite stable in the soil. So they're basically a pathway from the carbon gets taken out of the air, uh, converted into plant sugars via photosynthesis. The fungus utilises some of those sugars to produce melanin. And then they deposit that melanin out into the soil. And in particular, um, because fungi hyphae are so small, these uh, the hyphae can get into little small clumps of soil less than 250 microns, so less than a quarter of a millimetre across 
um, they call microaggregates, and inside these little tiny clumps of soil, um, there's no oxygen inside those little clumps of soil. So you can, if you can get an organism to deposit the carbon inside those tiny little microaggregates, it's stable uh, from oxidation, which otherwise will break carbon down in the soil. That reactions with oxygen. So this process um, is what we call fungal-mediated carbon sequestration, um, where the particular types of fungi produce the type of carbon that we're interested in, the state more stable form of carbon, and deposit that stable carbon into an even more, uh, even safer place in the soil in these microaggregates, and they're safe for uh, you know hundreds of years once they're trapped inside a, a microaggregate. So it, it's a way of um, sequestering carbon so it might not seem like much a tiny little organism sequestering a little bit of carbon from each plant but when you think uh, of the footprint of agriculture across the world um, you don't need to sequester very much per plant um, but you just need to get it across um, all the cropping plants across the world and all of a sudden you're able to sequester gigatons of carbon out of the air and it's uh, um, I think a lot of people don't quite realise that there's uh, the, the soil on the planet that we use for agriculture is the largest carbon sink on the planet. And um, farmers and their soils are, um, and, and the fungi there within uh, are one mechanism of pulling down a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it in the soil. And once it's in the soil, it's, um, it's not only a nice safe place for it to be, it's also very useful uh, place for it to be because more carbon in the soil means there's more water holding capacity, more nutrient cycling, better structure, uh, better uh, biological activity uh, in the soil. So generally makes the soil more fertile. It's pretty interesting to hear the role of fungi being able to take carbon out of the atmosphere because you'd almost think the opposite initially. You know, if you learn basic biology, you know, plants, plants breathe carbon dioxide in and put oxygen out and fungi are the, are the opposite they're sort of they're like us they breathe oxygen in and put carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere but yeah interesting to hear what you say there guys so they have this role in carbon sequestration and i guess as well their mycorrhizal association with plants they can boost the productivity of plants as well so they 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 do, do both things don't they? they they sort of contribute to taking carbon out of the atmosphere yeah, and, and you're dead right. I mean, the soil biology, both bacteria and fungi and all the other microbes in the soil, they, uh, they do respire, as you say, and they um, take in oxygen and, and give off carbon dioxide. And, uh, and and that's always the issue with trying to store carbon in the soil, that you, a lot of carbon goes in in, in the way of plant roots um, and organic matter, um, but it's quickly cycled back out into the air through um, respiration, oxidation and hydrolysis, so reactions with uh, water and reactions with oxygen. Um, but it's these particular small group uh, called dark identifiers that are able to, um, they still respire, but the byproduct of what they produce uh, is actually a stable form of carbon and you get a net gain in stable carbon, which is um, yet what it was, is of great interest to us in the context of uh, the climate challenge that we're facing. Yeah, right. So that's, uh, yeah, that's good. We should get you on the radio, mate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> question, question for you guys. So um, how long have you been um, doing this process and working with farmers and what sort of changes have you seen over that period of time? Like what sort of feedback are you getting from the farmers you're working with? 
in uh, getting farmers to adopt these sorts of yeah, practices. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, are they, are they taking a lot of convincing? Have, have they seen a change in, in their soil quality and they're giving you feedback about that? Yeah, definitely. I think um, modern agriculture is a process of going from a perennial system uh, through to an annual system. So a lot of the food that we eat that comes off paddocks is uh, from an annualised food production system. Um, so, you know, your cereals, um, canola, your pulse crops, um, all those annual vegetable crops and so on. And when you go to a, a, a largely annualised uh, production system, it gets harder and harder to keep carbon in the soil because you're constantly uh, got this life-death cycle um, expedited um, in an annualised system compared to a perennial system that where the roots stay in the soil for years and years and it's got a chance to build that carbon level up. So since uh, industrialised agriculture uh, begun, the world's soils have lost somewhere around 60% of their soil organic carbon uh, pool and soil organic carbon is the basically the foundation of the soil health so it's like the meat on the bones of your of your soil health if you like um so farmers are, are very cognizant of that that um you know it's uh slowly but surely we're losing soil fertility because we're burning uh, carbon out of our soils by the nature of the the crops that we're growing and it's a frustration that um there's lots of work gone into how do we remediate that how do we stem the, the bleeding, if you like, of uh, carbon le leaving our soils and indeed how do we turn it around and get more carbon going into our soils. And, and farmers, are, as I say, that's their, their resource base, it's their livelihood, the soil, it's, it, it actually governs the amount of money they make is how healthy and how productive their soils are. So it's a, it's a well-recognised issue, it's just um, no one's really been able to solve it satisfactorily um, as yet, and, and that's what we're hopeful with this. This research is, is, is at least part of the solution. We hope to turning that around, and instead of uh, losing carbon from our soils, to to actually gain uh, carbon in the soils. And the feedback from growers is uh, enormously excited. Um, they they can see what we're trying to do, um, and it's something that doesn't interfere too much with the production system. It's simply uh, putting spores of these particular fungi uh, onto the seeds um, as they plant them and then the plant germinates and the spore germinates and that relationship starts to take place and as the plant photosynthesises from the, the very first day that it throws up a leaf and starts photosynthesising and that carbon flow starts flowing into the soil, um, the fungus is there to start converting some of that carbon flow into, into stable carbon. and. There's a prestigious amount of carbon that actually goes into the soil each year from, from cropping and uh, um, a lot of people don't realise just how much sugar the plant gives up to the soil. It's somewhere around 25 to 30% of the total net photosynthate that the plant makes for the day through photosynthesis. Um, it exudes out into the soil to feed soil biology, to um, lubricate its, it, the passage of the roots through the soil and then various functions. And it's that carbon flow that um, we're hoping to take advantage of and um, put a fungus in there that does that particular little job of securing that, that carbon and uh, as an intermediary between the, the, the root and the soil. And, um, yeah, we, we've had a very positive response from farmers. Though. Um, yeah, we've got a little way to go with our research, but we've got a lot of growers sitting there waiting uh, to try it and see how it goes. Yeah, well, that's pretty remarkable stuff. Um now, 
Peter, you're sort of on the other side of things. You're you're concentrating a lot more on the uh, on the materials side of things. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, mushroom leather? Yeah, well, I guess as I mentioned, we've been working with these myco materials, exploring how the the hyphae, the fungi, can be harnessed to make uh, little building blocks, kind of like li- living Lego. We've done a lot of activity with schools, and then uh, more recently, looking into making this uh, a leather-like uh, material from fungi. So a couple of years ago, uh, we were surprised to get uh, a call from the uh, CIT Creative Designs, so this sort of fashion school here in, in Reed, at Canberra Institute of Technology. And they said, oh, we, we want your technical advice for growing fungi. And uh, we said, why, why is that? And they said, well, we, we, we want to make, we want to revolutionise the, the fashion industry because we're recognising more and more, a lot of our students are a little bit despondent <coughs> because they, they, they're caring for the environment, they're thinking about the impact and they're realising that thousands of tonnes of clothing goes to landfill every year. There are all sorts of chemicals that are used and they basically... Uh, facing this confronting sort of uh, issue that fashion is is partly you know killing the the world you know it's one of many things that humans do that are destructive to the world and so on one hand they want to pursue their their love of creativity in fashion but they don't want to impact the world and so they're looking for alternative ways of being sustainable this sort of circular economy that sort of thing so uh, yeah anyway they said look can we use fungi to grow leather and then we can get our students involved. And we were lucky to get a, 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 some grant from the Canberra government as well through Canberra Innovation Network. And then we collaborated with, with the CIT and, and they have this, this sort of quite a strong technical, uh, 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 you know, student, students that work with textiles and test materials and how they stretch and how the durability. And obviously they, they make all sorts of fashion accessories. And so we've been growing up these big mats of fungi basically on waste materials like you know the coffee grounds and and paper waste and that sort of thing Um, and then we seed it with the mycelium and grow them in just thin flat sheets and then we dry them out and apply natural tanning um, techniques with oils and other things like that and then end up with a sort of leathery rubbery mat uh, that is much like a leather and uh, I guess at this stage we've we've uh, made hundreds of samples with many many failures but last year we were able to get enough material that one of the one of the students at CIT made it into a nice made our leather into a nice uh, handbag and displayed that at sort of an orange wool festival we had here in the city last year and this year we looking at, uh, as Alison said, sort of scaling up, not quite industrially, but scaling up, making many more pieces so that the textile students there can begin to run it through its paces, you know, stretch it and bend it and wash it and see how flammable it is and water resistant so that we, we can work towards a, a consistent uh, commercial process of producing this this leather or other fabric types with mushrooms that can then be eventually commercialized and so i'd encourage any students at schools or anywhere who are interested there are a lot of experiments you can do yourself on that if anyone's interested happy to chat and also if you're a fashion student then (coughs) yeah head to cit because they're this is the forefront of research and application of myco science you know mushroom science in in the fashion industry so it's it's happening here in canberra yeah that's brilliant there was um an article about a fashion school in new york which was producing something similar too and they had actually made sneakers out of mushroom leather and i was wondering you know as you said you're still testing it but 
does it perform in a very similar way to leather, like the durability, the waterproof nature of it? The, um, yeah, look, it's it's similar. It's, it's, the stuff we've made is is not quite as strong as leather yet, but we're still working on uh, improving the process. But it's it's pretty darn good, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's a lot more research to do. I think Alison has mm-hmm. as well mentioned Echovative, and there's some other places mm-hmm. around the world where they've they've done a lot of uh, technical uh, sort of comparison mm-hmm. of, of leather and, and mushroom materials so yeah it's it's pretty exciting the other thing that we're looking at is instead of growing them in flat sheets is growing them in the shape of what you want much like the planter pots that we made so you could grow the fungi in the shape of a shoe or in the shape of a hat or in the shape of a whatever it is so you don't then need to stitch it up afterwards Mm. all the students who don't like sewing (laughs) And it sued me. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, actually, about um, 30 years ago, I actually took that course at CIT. Yeah. Um, we were far more primitive back then, but I remember being in the textiles room and doing all these incredible experiments to see um, what we could do to different textiles and how it would react. Yeah, they're, they're very creative and innovative there, and they've, they're really... It's amazing to see them take this sort of completely novel angle and uh, with gusto mm-hmm. and, and sort of apply these innovative techniques to their, mm-hmm. to their coursework. It's great. Yeah, and um, I guess another big thing that, that fungus really has a role in, which is, is similar to what Guy's doing, is in rewilding. And so, um, Alison, if, say, in the future the climate's changing, there's, there's agricultural problems and the amount of our broadacre sort of land is, is reduced quite a lot just through through the problems with either high temperatures or lack of water or whatever it might be, and, and the wild comes back in. How would how would fungus play a role in the in the spread of nature back in? Because that's also going to draw down an an awful lot of carbon out of the atmosphere too. Absolutely, and as Guy said earlier, um, fungi create soil. We call this process pedogenesis. And when you see a a glacier retreat, the first organisms that colonise that bare rock are the lichens which are classified as fungi and they actually break down both mechanically physically and chemically that rock and in any rehabilitation of land the fungi are going to be among the first organisms that appear after for example in in Australia when we have fire we often see things like the blackberry and those weedy species, those pioneer plants or early colonisers come in but in actual fact it's the fungi that are usually there first. If you have a really close look at the soil surface you might see a pinkish or orange sheen on it. If you get down close to a little 10 times magnifier you'll see these tiny cups and we call these pyrophyllus or phoenicious fungi which means fire loving fungi and they're often the first things to colonise bare soil. I mean bare soil occurs naturally very rarely in nature. Bare soils always colonise and fungi are usually the first things that actually put that architecture or those scaffolds of mycelium back into the soil. So when a seed does fall, when a bird, say, flies over and deposits a seed onto that, that damaged soil, it's the fungi that actually put that network there that creates some structure because soils become very friable when they're burnt. They can wash away or blow away fungal mycelium gives that structure, creates a bit of moisture, that seed has a great a greater chance to germinate. And I've been, it's been very exciting to see, for example, land care groups. We've had land care now for, what, over 25 years, I think, right back to when, um, who was it, Heather from the Farmers Federation and Joan Kerner 
got Landcare going, and it's been very much about getting trees in the ground. I mean, it's amazing if you think of the millions of trees that have been planted as part of Landcare. But now I'm seeing Landcarers say, but hang on a moment, trees aren't the first things that grow out of bare land. They're, you know, further down the successional path. We need to look at getting the fungi back in the soil and the soil crusts, all those, you know, lichens and bryophytes, mosses and liverworts and all those things to get that established first so we can maximise the chance that those trees will be successful. So it's actually the fungi and the other organisms that put those nutrients back, put that physical structure back, make those nutrients available through the breakdown of organic matter, making those nutrients actually available, unlocking them, making them available to the plants. So I've seen this real shift and it's a really exciting transitional time where people like land carers, farmers, all sorts of people who are involved in rehabilitation, revegetation, rewilding, whatever you want to call it, they're actually saying, right, okay, the fungi are the first thing we've got to establish, the bacteria, the fungi, and then we get the plants happening. So I think thinking is changing. I really see this amazing transition, as Guy was saying earlier, and you see things now, regenerative farming, permaculture, whatever you want to call it, the aim is all the same, and it's about trying to have the bigger picture thinking about starting with soil, starting with getting the condition, the structure, the nutrient, turning dirt back into soil, getting the biology into the soil to maximise the chance of the establishment of species thereon. Mm, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I guess people in the burnt areas throughout whole eastern Australia be seeing a lot of that at the moment. Indeed, absolutely. And, and it's not just damage to soil through fire and burning. I mean... As we've been talking about, you know, agriculture fundamentally changes. It reduces the complexity of systems. It reduces the the biological content. I mean, I'm talking about traditional uh, European agriculture. You know, we've seen it damage the soils, and I think um, whether that soil's been damaged through fire or through compression or through physical, yeah, exactly, compaction through grazing. Uh, if, you, if you compact soil, you crush the mycelium. If you over-irrigate it, you drown the mycelium. If you dig it up and till it, you break apart that, you know, gossamer-thin network of mycelial fibres. So all of those things remove that architecture, remove that scaffold of mycelium. So we're now recognising that the less we actually disturb the mycelium through tilling, through fire, through compaction, the more chance we have of actually establishing that, that scaffold, that architecture of fungi. Yeah, now this is amazing stuff. I mean, we've just skimmed the surface here. This is so big. We could do hours and hours and hours on this stuff. I mean, so we've got uh, waste streams, which are essentially figuring out how that that mycelial tip, when it when it it changes and, and tries its different keys, its different enzymatic keys in the different locks of something, when it finds its uh, when it finds a new thing. We can train it to uh, to bioremediate. Um, there's oil spills in the Amazon that have been cleaned up this way, uh, and it can it can eat a lot of the uh, yeah the hydrocarbonous sort of pollutions and uh, medicine. So we're using that self defence mechanism in that little soup that it exudes. That can be really effective in our medicines, and they've been proven by Paul Stamets to be really effective against pox and virus and that sort of thing. Um, Food, materials, sequestration, it goes on and on and on. Amazing stuff. However, we are getting towards the end of the show, so we're going to have to put some time into our listener questions. Yes, so we had um, a bunch of kids who have uh, got some questions they would like to ask the three of you. So um, anybody can jump in with the answer or you can all 
give a version of the answer. Um, so one of the questions we have is, can mushrooms live in the ocean as well as on land? Yes, indeed. Yeah, as Alison mentioned before, fungi are everywhere. And I actually bumped into a researcher in the 90s who was doing deep sea diving and collecting different organisms and then sampling the surface of their, uh, the fungi that were growing on the surface of these mm -hmm. organisms and then culturing them out on different uh, novel media, sort of agar dishes with different nutrients, and then screening them by sort of by prospecting, basically looking for medicines and things like that. So. Yeah. Great. And then, of course, um, this is always a question I get when I talk about mushrooms with kids. Um, do they glow in the dark? Are there any glow-in-the-dark mushrooms? Uh, <laughs> we've got one of the most impressive luminous or bioluminescent fungi, as we call it, known as the ghost mushroom. And it looks a bit like the oyster mushroom that you see in the supermarket, except they grow bigger and you'll find them at the bases of trees, mostly eucalypts, but sometimes on pine stumps as well. And they produce this very soft green glow. And we don't really know why. We thought it might have been to do with, to, you know, to attract insects or to attract some other kind of nocturnal animal that could help in the distribution of spores. But we've since found out that that's not actually the case. So my theory is that they glow to help the wombats find their way through the forest at night. What do you reckon about that? <laughs> we, we, actually, we actually were in Mount Gambry a few years ago. They have this ghost mushroom tour that they run at night. Now it's become a tourist uh, thing. Uh, I think there was a photographer going through a pine plantation one night and noticed this glow all around him. And in a really beautiful sort of manner, rather than sort of our introduced species jumping into the wild, we actually saw that the cut down pine trees were getting this native fungus, the, the, the ghost fungus, growing all over the tree stumps. And it's just a magnificent sight to behold at night. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I've seen them locally down the south coast and in Tasmania and even in the Queensland rainforest. Mm. They're all over the place, aren't they? Mm. And got just a couple more questions. We have touched on these a little bit in the interview, but I wanted to give them the specific answer they were looking for. How old is the world's oldest mushroom? <laughs> Approximately. <laughs> Do we know? Thousands of years, probably. Yeah, and yeah I mean, it keeps changing. This is the thing. I mean, we used to say fungi around in the Devonian era, era, and now that we say actually they're even older, we found mushrooms preserved in resin in Scotland. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands, millions of years that goes back, but I guess what depends you define as, as a fungus or a mushroom. I mean, lichens are certainly extremely ancient organisms, but... Guy or Peter, would you know the actual oldest mushroom? We could, can we put a number on that? Not sure. There are yeah, there's some, a couple of research papers where, as you mentioned, they they sort of found them fossilised and that sort of thing, which goes back uh, yeah millions or billions of years, I think. Wonderful. That's a much bigger Big number numbers. than I was imagining. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the last question, as we sort of touched on this one too, is: Do mushrooms have brains? <laughs> Do they have an intelligence that way? I guess maybe not. Mycelium. Yeah. The well, brain is the human brain, but I guess we could um, think of an intelligence. There are lots of different opinions on the planet about this, but I guess they they certainly can exhibit a um, what looks like a collective sentience, much mm -hmm. like you know. Uh, birds swarm together, bees do things, insects do things. Um, some of the, there's some interesting research in France with slime molds, which aren't really the true fungi, but mm. they, you know, they can learn very quickly to avoid salty things or to go towards <laughs> food. So I don't know if the others have 
ideas? Guy or Alison, do you want to jump yeah, in? Yeah, I guess in the way that we think about a brain. Of intelligence. Yeah, sorry, uh, Alison, Guy can't hear you. Go ahead, Guy. No problem, no problem. Sorry, I'm talking over the top of Alison, am I? Yeah, yeah, you can't help it, mate, you can't hear it. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it depends on your definition of intelligence, doesn't it? Some yeah. might argue that humans aren't all that intelligent, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, you know the way I view it is it's like um, an inside-out brain. Uh, all their their brains are on the outside, if you like, at the tips of their hyphae, sensing their environment and responding to the environment and, and working out what they're going to do with their environment. Um, so that is, to, in my mind, that's definitely intelligence. If uh, a hyphae grows out through the soil and encounters a, a piece of organic matter and scratches its head, its head and has a bit of a think and they go, I think I might include a few enzymes here and break down some, some proteins and get some nutrients out of this uh, this old stick and you know there's decisions being made and um, so yeah I, I would definitely say that um, all life is intelligent and certainly none, none more so than fungi potentially. Mm, well they're probably like the, the oldest life form on the planet right now so Oh, in some ways, maybe. Bacteria might be older. <laughs> but yeah. uh, anyway, I, I wanted to thank everybody for those questions and all of the kids that um, wrote in with the questions wanting to know more about fungi. So if they want to take it to the next step and get in touch with you guys and maybe get involved in um, mushroom growing kits or experiments they can do in the classroom, uh, how, how would they take the next step about getting more information and um, getting involved in any educational events or festivals or anything that might be happening that could help them? Sorry, Alison, Scott has just got to jump in there. I just really wanted to put in somewhere in this show <laughs> that um, a lot of the stuff that's being done overseas by people like P uh, Peter McCoy, is it? Um, yep. Is... It's citizen science. It's mm -hmm. people just getting on and doing it and and doing the science and spreading it through their own networks. And I think that rather than commercialisation, I think cooperatization might be the way to go here. Sorry. No, that's Alison. great. Great, Scotty. Citizen science, absolutely. So, Alison, please. I was just going to say, following on exactly what Guy was saying in Australia, um, I think it is most of it is bottom up and it's often individuals who are doing it, but the central hub for... All things fungal in Australia is Fungi Maps. So if you go on to fungimap.org, there's things like events listed there. You've got resources. There's a bookshop. There's contacts. All sorts of things. So that could be a good place for kids to start or anyone to start. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And if they wanted to get some kits from, from you, yeah, Peter? Yeah, they can look up our website, which is fungico.com.au. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And yeah, we've developed a syllabus for teachers and school kids uh, against the Australian curriculum. So if any teachers or kids are happy to uh, provide that or chat with, you know, as you can see, happy to chat anything <laughs> fungi. Okay, <laughs> fabulous. And um, Guy, do you do any um, educational or any workshops for people that are interested in maybe becoming agronomists themselves and getting involved in what you're doing? Yeah, we're sort of in the um, uh, pure research field at the moment. Uh, so a lot of our the wheels are spinning around um, you know, actually doing the research. But certainly we, we have an open forum on Facebook and through our internet with any questions from people uh, if they're interested in what we're doing. Um, yeah, we do love to have people reach out and ask questions. So simply just go go to our website and info at soilsequest.org.au and um, yeah, fire your questions at us and we'll get straight back to you. 
Fantastic. And, and, and I'd also just recommend, you know, it's not just for people who are interested in getting into the science and the nitty gritty, as I mentioned with the Canberra Institute of Technology, people who are fashion students who want to get into this novel bio-couture, you know, go for it. Incorporate fungi into any <coughs> aspect of your study or life. Mm. And also as people who are interested in food and food yeah. sovereignty, yeah. you know, growing mushrooms. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, doing also, I've, I've seen everything on your website there, Peter, from um, cocktails to uh, uh, meat substitutes. <laughs> We've made to mushroom ice cream, yeah. mushroom chocolate and all sorts of stuff, yeah. yeah. Oh, so that'd be a good one. So maybe yeah. all the foodies could get in touch yeah, with you absolutely. about that. And I have to just say, um, Peter in the studio with us is wearing the most amazing shirt that's covered in all these different mushrooms that have little caricatures on them. I should have mentioned that in the it's very my beginning. Mushroom, it's my mushroom radio shirt. It's mushroom radio shirt. Yeah. It's just speaks volumes. Just brilliant. Okay, well, it Beautiful. looks like we're just about out of time. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Scotty, before we oh, start the look, sign-off? I've got to encourage people, if you're interested in this, this is one of the big uh, industries of the future, so get in touch with these guys, learn as much as you can about it, spread the word, because, you know, there's plant relationships, farming... All of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just get into it, people. Yeah. This is great stuff. And, Alison, I just wanted to say that you have the most beautiful photos that I looked at, and that might be really inspiring for kids to see some of those. Where could they go to look at your photos of mushrooms? Oh, I've got really large archives on my website, which is just my full name.com. And um, also, there's lots of information there about I run about 50 odd workshops each year as well. But, yeah, there's big archives of fungi you can search by by keywords or names or whatever. So I'd love them to have a look. Okay, and we'll put that link up on our Facebook page for you, Alison. Alison's workshops are amazing. They're really, really good. Yeah, yeah, I've done them too. They're very good. (laughs) Thank you. Two votes of approval. Okay, well, brilliant. Well, it looks like we really are out of time now. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you to ecologist, nature historian and photographer Alison Puglio. Guy Webb from SoilQuest and Peter Wenzel from FungiCo for joining us today and participating in our Science Week special. It's been so much fun to have you here. That's the thing. We learn so much as presenters too when, when we have you guys in studio. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you've been thank listening. You. Yep. You've been listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio, 98.3 FM in Canberra. And we're going to go out with Mycelium All Around You by Formidable Vegetable Sound System. Yes, and if you like this, support 2XX, support your local community radio wherever you are. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, the New Economy Network of Australia, and Behind the Lines on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years and we do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. And to help out or join Co-Canberra, contact us at info at 
www.ruralpolitics.com.au. Thanks.